Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. From Wall Street Journal reporter and best-selling author Ben Fritz, The Big Picture chronicles the dramatic shakeup of Hollywood this century that has made superheroes, sequels, and toy franchises inescapable, and original movies for adults and endangered species. Drawing on the fruits of the Sony hack and interviews with key players at Marvel, Netflix, Disney, IMAX, Amazon, and more, The book takes readers deep inside Hollywood to show how it has radically changed and what the future of film will be. And Carol, I understand everyone is talking about Ben's best-selling book, The Big Picture. Yes, they are, Claire. And Ben Fritz has done an excellent job explaining what happened to the independent film world. So thank you, Ben, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we have a lot to cover today, but um, first I wanted to ask you, when you were writing this book, did you feel like that you were writing a bestseller? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think any, uh, I don't know any writers would feel that. I felt, uh, I felt extremely anxious when I was writing this book. Um, it took a long time between the research and the writing. It took, from the time I started the proposal all the way to finishing the final draft, there was three years, and by the end... Uh, oh. I had, I had no idea if uh, the book was any good anymore. You know, I, you, you lose all perspective during a project that long. So I had no idea if anybody would like it, anybody would be interested by the end. I, I, I just hoped. It is so full of personal information, inside information, that we used to only get from phone calls, you know, from mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. Oh, did you hear about, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's got all that. It's just full of information and statistics and numbers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like the encyclopedia of what's been going on for the last four or five years and what the potential future could be i'm i'm extremely impressed with it so Thank i want you. to get started with your welcome uh let's start with your overview of part one how Hollywood got here, because I want to know why I can't find a decent film to see until about September, and then it's only a few films that are available. So what happened to the production of brilliant independent films? What happened was, um, uh, turns out that, you know, most people around the world don't go to movies for the kind of film that you're, that you're describing, Carol. Most people... Um, are happy to watch that kind of content at home. And the, the movie theater experience is really, it turns out, what, what, what it does best is this sort of big franchise superhero or, you know, robot, let's say, Fast and Furious type film. So those are the kind of things you can't get on TV, especially now that there's so much great TV content. And it's the kind of content that appeals just as much to people in China and Russia and Brazil as it does to Americans. And it's really a global film market now. 
one you know one in which there's a lot, there's a lot of factors, but to summarize them, one in which DVD sales have collapsed. Um, one in which the box office is really global. It's not just about what Americans like. And one in which the film business is competing against, you know, the golden age of TV. So the, the types of films that work in that market have been much more constrained. You know, it's much more limited than what it used to be. And it's uh, what's really left that still thrives consistently are uh, big franchise pictures, whether, whether they're animated like Despicable Me or they're superheroes like the Marvel Avengers films or they're, you know, kind of just other big action spectacles like Fast and Furious or Jurassic World. So this is, it's this type of film that you just described that gets people into the theater. They don't want to go see uh, a, an independent film that, like Woody Allen's or the people that we all love every year, we get to see their brilliant <laughs> films. They, they, they won't get out and go to the movie for that anymore, mm. right? Not not nearly as much. I mean, it, you know, once in a while you still have a hit like that, but you used to see a lot of films like that, you kind know, of consistently doing well, and they were uh, they were a part of every studio slate. Now you just see a few of them every year that do well, and they're really exceptions to the trend rather than regular you know regular hits. I mean, one thing I just sort of have in the introduction of my book because um, it's just so striking to think about is back in 1989. Rain Man, which won Best Picture, was also the number one movie in America. It outgrossed everything. Um, that's unthinkable today. It's unlikely Rain Man would even get made by a major studio and released in theaters. It's in an original star-driven mid-budget drama. If it was, can, I mean, there's no way it would outgross Black Panther, outgross Avengers, outgross Jurassic World. Um, there's just there's no way that that would happen now. Um, so the world has the world has changed a lot. Um, that that kind of content is still getting made, but it's not the primary reason people go to movie theaters anymore. Well, I, I, okay. So I want to know. Let's start with about with Mark, what they did to move to the top of stardom. Sure. So Marvel is a really amazing case study. You know, Marvel is, uh, I think, without without a doubt, the most uh, successful movie company this century, which is why I focus on them a fair amount in the book. Um, and they've really driven a lot of the changes we've seen. And their history, like, like a lot of out of the blue successes, is something that few people saw coming and so many things could have gone wrong. It is all these factors happen to come together in the right way. Marvel uh Marvel, the comic book company, almost went bankrupt in the in the um, late 90s. And one of the things they did to try to raise cash coming out of bankruptcy was they licensed out some of their film rights. And they sold the film rights to Spider-Man to Sony Pictures for, for very little money. Um, and uh, it was like $10 million in advance and 5% of the, of the revenue. And then Sony started making the Spider-Man movies. And as you may recall, the first ones with Tobey, Tobey Maguire were huge hits. Sony made a lot of money off them, and they stopped, they you know they really started the modern superhero movie era. And the uh, executives at Marvel looked at that, and they were really jealous, and they were mad. They were like, you know, hey, Sony's making all this money, getting all this prestige off of our property, uh, and, and and we don't control when it comes out, and which makes it harder to sell toys and all the ancillary revenue that Marvel hoped to make. So they kind of came upon the idea with the characters they hadn't licensed out yet. Um, hey, maybe we should make our own movies. Um, it's a long story, which and I recommend reading the book to get all the details. But be, because there was, it was the time when the economy was booming, you know, before the financial crisis, it was pretty easy to raise money. And so they raised money to make a bunch of movies based on what seemed like B-list characters that nobody else wanted, like Iron Man and Thor, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. These were not their A-list characters. The A-list was Spider-Man, the X-Men, which they had licensed out. But then 
Marvel, uh, the people who were running Marvel were comic book geeks. They loved the characters. They weren't kind of traditional Hollywood studio types. And they made movies that were really close to the comic books and really uh, had that kind of fanboy geek spirit. And it turned out uh, that was a really wise decision. The comic books were really good source material. And pe- people loved how the, the, the fidelity they had to the comics. And what they really loved was just like in the comics, all the characters knew each other. So the comic book sto- the, the story, story of these movies tied together. And it was the invention of what we now call the cinematic universe. So if you saw Iron Man, you really wanted to see Thor, and then you really wanted to see Avengers because the story continued. So they were sort of like sequels to each other, even though they featured different characters because they all tied in. And so one Marvel hit begat another Marvel hit begat another Marvel hit until they became you know, the most massively successful company in Hollywood. They were bought by Disney for $4 billion, and everybody else is trying to copy that model of um, cinematic universes. Well, how on earth could they find the right writers, get the scripts to where they were so powerful. I mean, for someone to just jump in from comic mm-hmm. books to film is quite a big leap. What do you it think is. they did? Now, they did, and they did have, you know, the person running it, who's now the president of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige, he had sort of an interesting history. He, was a, he definitely was a comic book geek. Um, he did have some history. He had been a, like an associate producer, worked on the original X-Men movies for Fox, so he knew how all that worked. And it actually turned out to their benefit. They didn't have a lot of money. And the person who ran Marvel, and there's a lot about him in the book, named Ike Perlmutter, was very cheap. And he wouldn't spend money on big stars or A-list directors. So they got people who were kind of on the outs of Hollywood at the moment, like Robert Downey Jr. He was not someone the rest of Hollywood wanted at the time. His career was on the skids. And John Favreau, who directed Iron Man, was not an A-list director yet. They could get them cheap. And um, another interesting thing they did was they, they, they didn't say, you know, if you look at the Batman movies, Warner Brothers told Christopher Nolan, it's your vision, you do what you want with Batman. And those were great. But at Marvel, they said, no, it's our vision. We know what's best for these characters. And the, it's more the director, filmmakers are a little bit more like hired hands. And uh, they were saying the people who run Marvel, that they didn't have any other films. They only made the superhero films. It wasn't like a typical studio that had 20 films per year. Marvel was making one or two films per year. Now they're up to three. And they focused uh, really deeply on the superhero films. They knew exactly what they wanted them to be. And uh, they really, it turned out, uh, they, that was really an, actually a very good model. Actually having the producer and the, you know, who works for the studio be the, be the creative guru is something that works really well for these, for these franchise films. Sometimes having the filmmaker have total control um, is not actually a good way to run a franchise, as it turns out, which went against the conventional Hollywood wisdom. Yes. So the producer ran the, sh- uh, the whole show. In other yes, words, the, yep. Yep, the producer yeah. was the primary creative force. And if you look at the Marvel, there have been 20 Marvel movies. And if you were to say who is the primary author of these films, the cinematic universe overall, it's Kevin Feige, who's been the producer of all of them, who's the president of Marvel. He's absolutely the closest thing there is to uh, an author of these films, more so than any of the writers or directors. That's an incredible shift. <laughs> yep. Wow. So um, so here comes Marvel, and they they switch. Uh, they could jump into the industry, let's say, after they found the money that Sony was making off of their uh, their stories. So what happened next? Uh, who came along next and said, okay, we're, uh, we're really in trouble here. We're not making money on our 
a medium budget uh, films, our dramas are going nowhere. We're not bringing in money. What were what happened there with the other studios? Um, uh, well, other studios were looking at the success of Marvel and um, the success of a handful of franchises and seeing how many of their mid-budget movies, especially dramas at the time, were flopping. And they started to realize they had to cut back on that and they, had, they would have to focus on their own franchises. That was just sort of the only, that was the path to success. It was where, it's where the biggest profits are. Um, and a lot of studios were, were reluctant to do it. And Sony, which I focused on in the book a lot, was very reluctant because they had had a lot of success with mid-budget dramas and comedies like... The Will Smith, you know, like Captain Phillips, The Social Network. They were the home of Adam Sandler, who had a lot of hit comedies. They were the home of Will Smith, who made some big action movies like Bad Boys, but also made like The Pursuit of Happiness, um, films like that that made, you know, that made good money. Um, and uh, they they really struggled. It, any studio that didn't have a lot of franchises was struggling. And the you know the I'd say the model of the studio that was successful is really Disney, which bought Marvel, bought Pixar. They turned their, you know, they started remaking all their old animated films as live-action versions, like Beauty and the Beast and um, Cinderella and um, The Jungle Book, and those have all been really great branded franchises. So the, stu- the studios that have more of those or can create more of those have been the most successful, and the studios that don't and have still been have had and relied too long on mid-budget dramas, thrillers, romantic comedies, those have been the studios that have that have struggled in the past few years. Amazing. Well, let's go to foreign sales, because I understand from the book that foreign sales are now controlling domestic production. So how, what's going on in this area? Sure. Well, you know, the international box office is something like two-thirds of, you know, total revenue. Um, international drives uh, drives the business now. Um, a lot of, There are a lot of movies now that make most of their money overseas and don't, you know, and that's what they're sort of designed to do. And, and it's very hard to have a movie that relies only on the American market. And the, America used to account for the vast majority of revenue. So the studios thought about movies that mainly would appeal to Americans and the international box office was kind of an afterthought, but now, you know, you can have certainly, you know, the Marvel movies are a good example. Um, uh, Transformers is a great example. You know, the, these are movies that are made uh, primarily for, uh, for the international box office, even more than for Americans. And uh, certainly if you're spending $200, $250 million to make a film, it can't just appeal to Americans. So that's why, you know, someone who grew up on you know, watching movies in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, thinking about films that were really made to appeal to American sensibilities may feel a bit alienated going to see the big uh, event films now. That be- if you want to make a movie that can appeal to people around the world, it can't be culturally specific um, and frankly, it has to be kind of lowest common denominator because you're trying to appeal to such a broad and diverse audience. Well, amazing. I really enjoyed your explaining in detail the growth of the film industry in China and how powerful mm-hmm. they are today. So I know you can't cover everything, but if you could just give us some of the highlights yeah. of how they got into it. Sure. China, the China story is so interesting. Um, and, you know, for a long time, China didn't allow in virtually no American movies. There's a great anecdote I found about how in the 80s, like several years after the film came out here, they released the first Superman with Christopher Reeve there. It played for like a few weeks and then it was pulled by censors who decided, you know, it, it promoted Western imperialist values. Um, and for a long time, you couldn't see any American movies. But as, as the country, you know, as China started to open up to capitalism and started trading with the West, um, they eventually, as part of that, started to open up to Western movies a little bit, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. 
And, if, and, and unsurprisingly, people in China love Western movies, as people around the world do. They loved Hollywood films, and they wanted as much as they could get. And China's had to balance, well, on the one hand, they they want to, you know, be a trading partner and make money with the West. Um, on the other hand, you know, they don't want uh, to have too much, too much what the, the values of Hollywood movies often, you know, clash with uh, capitalism, uh, sorry, with communism. Um, but eventually China concluded that if they wanted to become a world power, they would have to uh, get into the entertainment business essentially. And so the trade-off they've made is they've started letting in a lot of Hollywood films and then they've started trying to copy it. And one real turning point was, uh, Avatar, um, that film, you yeah, know, was, yeah. that film was massive. I mean, there were lines that lasted hours and hours. People were buying tickets, you know, scalping tickets for $100 in China. Um, the, 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 the 3D appeal was tremendously appealing because these are people who often grew up never going to, to movies. And to see something in 3D, was, you know, was really mind-blowing, I would say. that, that the, the, the technology, the visual effects like that is really appealing to people in China. That's why they really love big spectacle films because they're going to the movie theater to see something they've never seen before, you know? Um, and so uh, those types of films became massively successful in China. The Chinese box office took off right at the time that DVD sales were plummeting. It was a new source of revenue for Hollywood. And so Hollywood took, took as much of it as they could. And, uh, you know, the only constraint has been that the Chinese government has quotas. They only let in a certain number of Hollywood films every year. Um, and uh, everybody in Hollywood wants to be one of those films. And why do you think they put this restriction on? Because they want to grow their own movie business, Caroline. That's a really important thing. And their their way of doing it is, is saying, okay, people love movies. Well, we're only, we're only going to give them so many Hollywood movies. And the rest of the time, they're going to have to see Chinese movies. And that's that's their way of starting to grow the Chinese movie business. And so, like at the beginning, the most of the movies made in China were not very good. Um, e- even people mm-hmm. in China didn't like them that much, you know, because they didn't know what they were doing, frankly. But they've they've learned. They've been, you know, there's a lot of investment from businesses and government, and they frankly copy what uh, what they see works from the West. And they can make movies that are, you know, only meant for the Chinese audience. So they can make comedies or. Um, dramas, let's say, that only are, are made for Chinese and aren't made to export. And so these days, you, you know, you see more movies made in China that are successful in China. And um, the box office results there are roughly 50-50. And the, but the government wants it to be 50-50. And if they start seeing things tilting too much towards Hollywood films, all of a sudden, you'll see uh, successful Hollywood movies are yanked out of theaters sooner than they otherwise would have been, for example, or uh, they're open on a bad date because the government wants to make sure that their that they're local their locally made films uh, are are doing well and are sometimes the only option for Chinese audiences. Do you think the Chinese population knows what they're doing? Oh yeah, I think they know. <laughs> I think they I think they know for sure. Like there's some examples in the book. Sometimes people in China um, have gone to see an American movie. I, think, I believe it was it's mentioned in the book. I'm trying to remember the exact example. It may have been a Terminator film or a Mission Impossible. But anyway. Um, uh, a, 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 like a propaganda film um, that made in China about some military victory in the past opened the same time was doing poorly. So people were buying tickets to see the Western movie, and, but, the, but the ticket stubs they were given were for the local Chinese film because they wanted to get the box office of that film up. So uh, and yes, people in China yes, were taking, you remember that example? It was great. And people yes. in China were taking photos of, photos of this and posting it on social media. So they yes, definitely know what's they happening. Were writing, you said they were writing Terminator over the name of the, uh, film yeah. on the ticket. Yes, exactly right. So there was so therefore it went in the computer system and the revenue was going being counted for the Chinese film. But they would write Terminator on it so the person who could actually go into the theater and see Terminator, which is what they really wanted to see. 
Well, all right. So um, now, uh, what about the uh, Chinese censorship? Because that's mm-hmm. becoming very powerful. And I just read recently that a big film was turned down in China because of censorship. So I guess the tail is wagging the dog here. If mm-hmm. two thirds of the box office is coming from international, mm-hmm. and China is one of those major players, if they won't take it, you're going to lose revenue. So you would be manipulating the script or changing mm-hmm. things so that that it could be accepted. Would you say oh, yeah. so? Absolutely, and you see, you know, the people in Hollywood, even at, at this at the script stage, are aware of things that might offend offend the Chinese government or not be allowed under their sensibilities. And so you certainly would, you know, one, they don't like the supernatural, for example. You don't see many big budget movies with supernatural elements because those are hard to get into China. Like the last Ghostbusters didn't get in there, which was a big problem for them. It was a mistake, I think, on Sony's part. Um, the last the last Men in Black, they, there's a scene that takes place in, with violence in Chinatown in New York. Even that would have offended the Chinese government, so they, they cut that out for China. Um, but of mm-hmm. course, my favorite example, which is in the book based on an LA Times story I did, was there was a few years ago a remake of the film Red Dawn, if you remember that. Uh, the original was a bunch yes. of Soviet, so Soviets invade America and some American teenagers save the day. The new one was made with the idea that uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese armies were invading and American teenagers saved the day. Except uh, between the time they started making it and when they were done, the Chinese market boomed. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, they, you know, n- no company wanted to release it because even if it didn't go into China, they still knew it would offend the Chinese government. So the producers yeah. of the film had to go in and they had to, had to digitally change every image of a Chinese flag or a Chinese pin in the film and change, change it to North Korea because nobody cares about offending North Korea. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So China has a lot of control over the movie industry already. Yep. Um, oh, all right. So we have a lot to cover today. Your book is terrific. So let's uh, talk about the creation of Netflix and how it mm-hmm. fits into this shift in the film industry. Sure. Well, I mean, the creation of Netflix is a big story, but I, I, I think that the short of it that's really relevant is um, – you know, they, you know, originally they were a DVD distribution company, of course, as you'll recall, and then they started getting into streaming video. And in both cases, they were mainly distributing stuff made by the Hollywood studios to films and TV shows. So they were a big buyer. And of course, the studios loved that. It was in, there, were, there were new checks coming out of nowhere for their content. And then Netflix re- decided they were going to become more of a, of a competitor. Um, they were going to start producing their own original content. And they started with TV, and now they started to move into film. And this is, of course, a big threat to um, the uh, uh, traditional Hollywood studios because Netflix is very successful. They're massively popular. They have a great a great digital product that people love. And people, and their models are fundamentally different, Carol. I mean, the thing to really understand is that every time you go to see a movie, it costs you $10, $15, right? So it costs you more money. You have to say, is it really worth it to see this film? Even to rent it at home, right? Five or five bucks, eight bucks. But with Netflix, you just pay your ten or twelve bucks a month. The additional cost of watching something new is nothing. Right? There's no marginal cost. So they can people are willing to try new things, different things on Netflix that they won't try um, uh, when they when they have to spend you know more money to see it. So if you're going to the theater, spending a lot of money on tickets and popcorn and maybe even babysitters. You'll say, okay, I'll go see that Marvel movie because I know what I'm going to get. You know, I don't want to take a risk on something. Who knows if I'm going to like it? But on Netflix, I'll take a risk. I'll try something new. It costs me nothing. I'm staying at home. So Netflix, uh, you know, Netflix as it became more successful, wanted to own content, not license it from the studios, because and the studio started to see them as a competitor. 
So Netflix has started buying movies at festivals and producing their own films, and this year they're releasing 80 original films, something like that, um, mixture of acquisitions wow. from other companies and films they produced all themselves. So there's, And they're doing it in genres that the studios abandoned. They, after Adam Sandler started dying at the box office, he signed with Netflix. Turns out there are a lot of Adam Sandler fans out there. They just don't really want to pay to go to the theater to see him. They're happy to watch him at home. And he's been very successful on Netflix, for example. Will Smith, another big movie star who started making movies for Netflix now. Um, and you're, I mean, you, you name the major, I mean, major filmmaker or stars. So many of them are working for Netflix now. There's a Martin Scorsese film that's coming out on Netflix. There's an Alfonso, Alfonso Cuaron film that just debuted at a festival that's coming to Netflix. The Coen Brothers. Um, Jennifer Aniston, you know. Ooh. Yeah, the Coen Brothers are making a Netflix film. It's because Netflix will take risks with, with uh, – on original films, and they'll pay a lot of money, frankly. And they, they have a lot of money. You know, they're so successful. So they are just they are making the exact kind of films that studios don't want to make anymore, and people will watch them. they just rather watch them at home and not have to pay extra money to, to give them a try. So they're really, um, they're really uh, taking over all, a lot of the parts of the film business that the major studios are abandoning. So these are the mid-budget drama films. They're, a lot of them, yeah, mid-budget dramas, comedies, and even lower-budget indie films, too. Yeah, all, all these sorts of films the studios don't make much of anymore. You're seeing them more on Netflix now and also on Amazon. Uh, all right, I want to get to Amazon, but, but staying with Netflix for a, a minute, uh, I heard that they had a $6 billion budget for films. Is that right? Uh, it's a little off. They, so their their content spending, which is all the, all the content they make, um, which uh-huh. is both a re- films and TV shows, and also the stuff they buy. Like there are a lot of repeats of old TV shows on there as well, and some old films. When you add that all together, they're spending something like eleven or twelve billion dollars a year, actually. Um, billion. Billion, 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 which is ma- you know a massive amount of money. That's comparable to what say all of. If you look at a company like uh, what used to be Time Warner, that's now owned by AT&T, and you combine Warner Brothers, HBO, and T- Turner, and you know TBS, TNT together, that's what a company like that spends, or NBC Universal across all its networks and studios. So that's a massive amount of money equal to any other major media conglomerate. Now, the amount they're spending just on original films is a fraction of that. You know, I, couldn't, I don't know the exact amount. I doubt it's much more than, let's say, $1 billion. Um, but again, that's comparable to what uh, major studios spend, like Sony, which is a big example in the book. In a typical year, they were spending close to a billion dollars making films. So that's what Netflix is spending now. They're they're just like any other major media company in all front, in all areas, including movies. So they're they're making their budget for uh, for the low budget for for the films or the independent films is the same thing as Sony is spending for their product. Incredible. So they are probably they're one of the biggest players now, right? Oh yeah, they're absolutely one of the biggest players, and they they will often outbid another company for a project they want. Um, because their economics are different. So the studios, if they want a project, especially one that's original and risky, they'll say, well, Carol, you know, I like your idea. I'll give you a few million up front, and then if it's a hit, I'll give you a portion of the box office revenue, a portion of the profits, you know? But Netflix doesn't do that because they don't have box office. They don't, you know, their films barely play in theaters, if at all. And of course, they don't, there's no specific revenue that, that you're paying to watch. If you watch an Adam Sandler movie tomorrow, you're not paying an extra dollar, right? So... There's no revenue specifically for that. So Netflix just gives you a big check up front, a bigger check than Sony or Warner Brothers will give you. 
but then you're done. So it's very tempting to a lot of talent to say, hey, I could go to Sony and they'll give, I'm making these numbers up. Sony will give me $5 million. And then if it's a hit, I end up getting 30. But Netflix will give me $25 million right now, guaranteed, no matter, and no matter what happens. So that's very tempting. And a lot of people go with Netflix as a result. Right. Well, now uh, let's get into uh, Amazon mm-hmm. and how the two of them are working uh, with this whole new world. I, I'm a big fan of Ted Hope, and mm-hmm. I really have always followed his career. So I was pleased when Amazon hired him. I thought that was a brilliant move. Uh, and I need, So tell me about Ted and what he's doing at Amazon and how that fits into the new world. Sure. So Ted, Ted Hope is the head of production for Amazon's, Amazon Studios Film Division. And, um, you know, he's in, as you know, he's a veteran of in, indie films. He's been a producer of, you know, think of the kind of movies that would go to, you know, Sundance or the Toronto Film Festival, the kind of movie, you know, he used to work, I believe, for Focus Features, which was kind of like Miramax back in the day, those kind of films, you know, your, um, your real art house movies uh, is what, you know, his background is in. And he, by the late 2000s or early 2010s, he was getting very frustrated, like a lot of people in his profession were, because it was so hard to make those movies, so hard to get a decent budget for it. Um, the money just wasn't there for all the reasons we've been discussing. And then along came Amazon. You know, Ted actually wrote a book about his frustrations, and that book led to a meeting with uh, the former head of Amazon Studios, which uh, who told him, hey, we're forming a film division, and Amazon wanted to focus primarily on these indie films, original dramas for adults. They make a lot fewer than Netflix, and they really, this is what the area they really wanted to focus on was these kind of indie films. And, um, uh, and you know, Amazon's theory was we want to make, you know, we want to be distinctive. They want to have a good brand. And they figured these kind of movies appeal to affluent, educated adults who are not coincidentally the kind of people who spend the most money buying stuff online on e-commerce. And, and Amazon makes movies and TV shows to get you more engaged with their digital universe, all their products. And ultimately, hopefully you'll buy more stuff from them and remain a subscriber to Amazon Prime. So uh, that's the kind of audience they wanted to reach. Those are the kind of films they've started making. And, uh, you know, they had a, they've had some Oscar winners like Manchester by the Sea and The Big Sick. And um, they've really quickly made their mark in this area of indie films, which is you know, certainly an area that studios have cut back on significantly. Oh, and I, I'm sorry, I should know, Carol, one important thing about Amazon I forgot. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Netflix, you know, really believes in day and date releases, so their movies, their movies don't really play in theaters because most theaters won't play a film that's available to watch at home the same day. So Netflix movies mm-hmm. really everybody watches them at home. Maybe they'll maybe Netflix will rent out a few dozen theaters to play it, just so it technically played in the theater qualifies for the Oscars. But n- nobody goes to see that. You can stay at home and watch it on your TV or your iPad. Amazon still supports a traditional theatrical release, so their films will go in a theater for a few months before it's available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. So that's a big difference between them. Yes, yes. Well, um, do you, was Ted Hope involved in um, Manchester by the Sea? Yes, he was. In, I mean, he, they, that film was an acquisition out of Sundance, but Ted was, yeah, Ted was the executive who bought that movie for Amazon. Wow. Okay, because that's the kind of films he used to make. So that's the kind of work I always appreciated. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, where's Amazon going? I mean, these two are on a parallel path, but yep. they're just having their differences as to the theater or non-theater. Yep. Uh, do you see this continuing? 
I do. I mean, look, Netflix kind of wants to make every kind of movie for everybody. And this, every kind of TV show, Netflix is trying to become the, let's say, the a service that appeals to everyone. So they're, you know, look, you know, if you watch them on TV, they make every kind of TV show that exists. They have nonfiction, they have sitcoms, they have dramas, they have procedurals, they have, they have everything. Amazon has been a little bit more targeted. They only make certain kinds of, uh, you know, they make kind of indie films and mostly more upscale TV shows. Amazon is trying to broaden their mandate a bit. They have a movie coming out, I think, in a week or two called Life Itself from the creator of This Is Us, which is, you know, it's still a mid-budget drama for sure, but it's a little bit more commercial than, say, in Manchester by the Sea, a little bit more mainstream. So they're edging towards more mainstream content, but still on the indie side of things. You know, whereas whereas Netflix is continuing to make the lower budget dramas, they have this Alfonso Cuarón film that's black and white, takes place in Mexico City in the 70s. Um, you know, that doesn't scream commercial hit, right? And it just, but it just played a uh, mm-hmm. Telluride festival and won a big award at Venice. But they're also making superhero movies. Um, they're making bigger budget action adventure films. So, so I'd say I'd say Netflix is getting in the business of every kind of movie that there is, pretty much, except for the app, the absolute biggest budget you know, Avengers type film, they're not there yet, but otherwise you're making almost everything else. Whereas Amazon is still pretty targeted in in lower budget uh, dramas and comedies for adults. Okay. So really, if you have both of those, it Mm -hmm. is like $20 a month and you have enough entertainment to keep you glued for ages, right? Oh yeah. That's the thing. Oh yeah. There's no reason kind of to, um, there's no reason to go to the theater if you don't want to. You know, if the only reason to go to the theater these days is if you like the theatrical experience, if that really matters to you. If you care more, you know, if you like being in the theater with other people, or if there's something that you really want to see first and is playing in the theater. But if you don't feel like going to the theater, you can stay at home and you can get so much great content. There's so many, many great TV shows. There's so many original films being made for Netflix and Amazon. You can get way more than any human being uh, could possibly even, you know, get to the list and just, just stay at home on your TV or your iPad. Yes, it's wonderful for the viewers. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And what, I, what I'm finding is that um, I like uh, – I liked uh, this writer uh, who did um, Wind River. He's just a brilliant yep. young writer, and mm-hmm. so uh, and but Wind River was produced by uh, Harvey Weinstein, so Weinstein it did company, not yep. get any play. Remember, mm-hmm. it's a shame because yes, it was do. a great film. Yep. But what happened was that Paramount picked him up for. He's the writer on Yellowstone. Yes, and. Uh, since I'm following his career, I had to find out on my TV station that I had the Paramount Channel. I'd never used it before, but mm-hmm. this Yellowstone drove me to Paramount's channel for the first time. So yeah. is this a new trend? Are we going to see other studios creating their own channels and making content for them? Well, I mean, I think that's Taylor Sheridan who you're talking about. And, yeah, I, what I think right. you will see what – what, what that really illustrates is um, – you know, the best creative talent going to television because there's so, because, because it's so much harder to get an original, interesting film made. Um, but that's, that's kind of, that kind of content's really thriving on TV. The, the Paramount network is a specific thing that happened. That network used to be Spike and they wanted to rebrand it. I don't think you're going to necessarily see a Warner Brothers channel or a Sony Pictures channel anytime soon. Um, but what you are seeing is a lot of the great creative talent, writers, directors, actors going to TV, whether it's, 
um, you know, cable networks like AMC, FX, the Paramount Network, whether it's HBO or Showtime, you know, just for example, Jim, Jim Carrey has a new show on Showtime, I think debuting this week um, from the director of, uh, who made Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with him. Um, and of course, Netflix and Amazon have lots of great TV shows uh, created by, you know, people who used to be filmmakers. And the fundamental trend there is um, there's, it's a time when the best original content, as everyone knows, is on TV. It's not in, it's often not in movies. So if you're the kind of creator who wants to make that content, you often go to TV. Um, and the reason for that is that TV is subscription-based business now, right? You, you pay a monthly bill for cable or you pay a separate bill just to get HBO or Showtime or a bill to get uh, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. And uh, when, you're pay- when you're paying a subscription, um, then you then they they have to deliver content that really people love. It doesn't they don't just you can't just watch it and be like eh because if you watch it you're like eh then you'll probably cancel your subscription. It's not worth the ten or fifteen bucks a month. You have to love it. So they so they yeah. do more you know they do riskier original content. And on Netflix, for example, they may make you know they want to make shows that you love and the shows that I love and the shows you love may not be the shows I love. You may watch entirely different things than me on Netflix, but as long as there's enough to satisfy everybody, they're happy. So. They'd rather, in the modern TV era, cable, satellite, streaming, premium cable, they'd rather have a show that 2 million people love than 10 million people watch, but eh, don't, you know, don't care about. Whereas 20 years ago, traditional network TV was advertiser-supported. They didn't care if you liked it. They just cared that you watch it. So that's why TV was the idiot box and kind of lowest common denominator, kind of you know, silly sitcoms and cop shows. And the, so that's why all the best creative talent went to movies, because movies were the place where you can make original, interesting content. Now it's the opposite. Now TV is the place to make that. And film is sort of the more generic stuff, like the Marvel movies, for example. Right. A major shift. Yes. Well, where do you think things are going? What do you see uh, Hollywood looking like in the next three years? I mean, I think you're going to see more your Hollywood trying to ape Netflix. So the movie business is going to, just going to go more and more toward these big franchise-type films. Um, and you are the, the traditional cable TV business is shrinking a lot. So you're seeing companies starting to launch their own digital services. That's what Disney's doing right now. They're pulling all their movies off Netflix. Um, they're pulling back on what they make for TV, and they're launching a Disney digital service. Um, it's going to come out late next year. And it's going to have all their best family content on it and all their Marvel movies and their Star Wars movies and their family films. Wow. After after they play in theaters and on, on DVD, they're going to go to the streaming service and it's going to compete directly with Netflix. Um, and their TV shows after, soon after, and they're going to have a lot of original films and original TV shows they make just for this service. It's going to compete directly with Netflix. And as part of it's that, you know, Disney's buying Fox, as you know, and they're buying, as part of that, they get control of Hulu. Hulu will be more of an adult streaming service for the kind of content that's after the kids go to bed or if you don't have kids. Um, and you'll see the other studios doing something similar. Warner Brothers, which owns DC, you know, Batman, Wonder Woman, so on. They're launching a DC streaming service soon that will have original shows and movies. And that's, that's where we're going. And when it comes to films, which is the focus of my book, you're going to see more original films made, made exclusively for these digital services. Um, they'll be the lower budget kind of films. And for the big budget films, they'll play in theaters first, and then they'll quickly go onto these digital services. And um, that the future of Hollywood is a, is a digital one. And, the box, and, and I think movie theaters will continue to exist. They'll still be important, but... They're, they're more going to be, for the audiences, they're more going to be kind of an option, like go to the theater if you like the theatrical experience, if you want to be with an audience, or you like the best screen, the best sound. But uh, 
if you, but but you can pretty much watch everything on the digital services you subscribe to at home if you don't like going to theaters. Well, where can um, what I need to understand is where can uh, independent filmmakers get their five or eight million dollars for their for their films these days? I mean, they're going to have to raise that money, or uh, or do you think they're going to go to Netflix and? job it out just well they're probably i mean the, you know i think netflix and amazon are going to be really appealing places for them uh if possible um I, th- I think the idea of raising the money from investors and maybe you know foreign sales which is you know where you get a little money from poland a little money from you know germany and so on and cobble it together and then you release it in the theater that model's dying because these films are so hard you know so hard to make money in the theaters so you really want to have some kind of a, of a digital service attached to your film that way you're not relying on the box office and DVD sales to make your profits. You know, um, a lot of these filmmakers still want to have their movies released in theaters, of course. But if you're relying primarily on the box office to make your money, then you're going to be in a really tough, really tough position. If you're relying on the box office to make your money, so you've mm-hmm. got to be able to get it through the digital services. Yes, but the, mean, the uh, what? Yes, but I mean that means Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, or the growing number of ones launching from the studios. But look, the the the, the good news in all this um, is uh, you know these digital services are proliferating. There's just gonna be more of them, and in total, there's more content than ever. So the way I look at it is, yes, if you if you define you know great entertainment as a two-hour movie that's released in a theater, then yeah, it's a little depressing, for sure, because there's gonna be they're not going away, but this is becoming more and more of a limited market, but on these digital services, it can be three hours, it can be five hours, divide it to two parts. You look at a lot of the TV shows now are just eight episodes, you know, so it's only, yes. t- which is seven or eight hours of content. And what's, that's really just a long movie. That's really a lot of these, a lot of these shows started as movies and then they, they turned them into a TV show with the writer when they realized that was the best way to sell it. So if, 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 if you don't care exactly how long your content is or how it's divided up and where you watch it, it's the, it's the best time ever in the history of, I would say, you know, the uh, history of motion pictures, there's more great content being produced now than ever before. So that's, that's, that's the good news. The bad news is if you really love the movie going experience, the traditional movie theater experience, that's becoming more and more limited. And I'm, af- I'm afraid it's going to become a little bit more of a niche, kind of like, kind of like uh, buying vinyl albums. Right. Well, let me ask you something about uh, documentaries, because we, yes. as a fiscal sponsor, work with a lot of documentarians. Uh, do you see, what do you see as the potential for documentaries oh, this is, in this, this is the, new? This is really a golden age for documentaries, and it's entirely because of digital. Um, not, 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 non, nonfiction content is doing great on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and, this, the, and cable like HBO. They can't get enough of it. Um, and so if you talk to any documentary filmmaker or producer these days, they're doing better than ever before. Um, and as a result, I think, of this booming interest in digital, even a few of these films are doing better at the box office than they used to. Documentaries used to never succeed at the box office unless, unless it was Michael Moore. I mean, $5 million was considered a massive hit. But this year we've had, I think, three films that have grossed, you know, like 15 or $20 million. One was the Mr. Rogers documentary. Uh, another was Three Identical Strangers, which was a great film. Um, there's one other I'm blanking on. It's been a great year for documentaries at the box office, and again, on digital, there's, there are so many of them, and often they're series instead of uh, films, but broad, broadly speaking, it's, when, if you look at nonfiction, I think the changing economics of Hollywood are really, really good uh, for nonfiction programming, so that's been great news. 
Yes, that is great news. Now, what about Amazon and Netflix? Do you think that they're going to continue to uh, produce docs and buy them? You think so? I think as as long as there's audience interest, they will. I think I think they'll it'll continue to be to be part of their of their programming lineup. Uh, for sure, you know it may ebb and flow depending on the year and where audience taste audience taste goes. But I think it'll, I think it'll definitely be uh, be a be a part of their formula for sure. I don't I don't think we're going to see them disappear. Good, that's very important. All right. Well, in closing, tell us what you think our industry will be like in three years. I think interesting what what. I think we're going to see a lot more digital services launching, and I think it's going to be a little messy because how, you know, how many digital services can you subscribe to at home? You have Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. You have the Disney one. You're going to have the Warner Brothers DC one. You're going to have uh, there will be an NBC Universal one. And how how many are there going to be? <laughs> it's going to be a problem. Um, and all the contents to buy. Oh, I want to watch this show. It's only on the Disney one. I want to watch that show. It's only on Amazon. I want to see this film. It's only available on Hulu this month, but then in two months, it's also available on Netflix. That's that's the challenge the industry is going to have to figure out. Um, but broadly speaking, we're still going to see we're going to see more and more great original content being produced. I think all signs point to higher and higher investment in original content, and so uh, it's going to, there's going to be a lot more out there. It's just going to be it's going to get messier and messier about where you can see it and when on what platform. It, is this movie's coming out? Can I see it in theaters? Is it even in theaters? No, it's only it's only in twelve theaters for a week, and then it's on Netflix. Um, oh wait, no, that's a Hulu film. Oh, it's an Amazon film, so it'll be in theaters first. That's the so think about oh, there's so much great stuff to see, but where do I see it and when? That's that that's I think yeah. the weird world that we're entering into. It's going to be the weird world. Oh, I love mm-hmm. it so much. Well, thank you for this interview, and thank you so much. for. Uh, I'm talking for a lot of filmmakers when I say thank you for this book, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of the Movies. No, it was, it was really my pleasure to talk to you, and, and thank you so much for the kind words. Okay, Claire, thank you for the show. Yes, it was a pleasure. And, Ben, uh, keep up the good work. Let us know when you have book two coming out. Okay, I will. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Be well. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. To our listeners, I want to tell you how grateful we are for the donations you have given at FromTheHeartProductions.com to support our podcast. Carol and I sincerely thank you, and we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for more shows. What are some topics that you would like covered? Who do you want interviewed? We are always open to your feedback, so please connect with us and let us know. And join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions.
If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.